Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted March 31, 2017, we talk about the harsh abortion policies across the Americas and the Caribbean with Medellin-based journalist Angelica Albaladejo. Her article in the WPJ Winter Issue is headlined, A Witch Hunt Against Poor Women. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ Spring Issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. We've got Winners and Losers, the Brexit Trigger Edition. Theresa May, winner. She does it all right so far. Just wait, it's going to get harder. Nicola Sturgeon, winner. She's going to have her Scottish referendum after all, sooner or later. Marine Le Pen, winner. Of course, Brexit's good for Marine. Let's see where the elections go. Angela Merkel, loser. She hates everything about Brexit, and she's got to deal with the tight election. EU, loser. Come on, it's all going downhill. UK, it's going to be bad. Loser, don't like the Brexit. listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Well, I think the president, it's no secret, has made himself made it very clear that he's a pro-life president. He wants to stand up for all Americans, including the unborn. And I think the reinstatement of this policy um, is not just something that echoes that value, but respects taxpayer funding as well. It is the targeting of the most vulnerable women in the whole world with a policy that is going to mean women will die One of the first executive orders Donald Trump signed as president, surrounded solely by men, was reinstatement of the so-called Mexico City policy, preventing overseas organizations that get U.S. government aid from performing, recommending, or even discussing medical termination of pregnancy, as underscored by White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. He ignored the dire implications for unwanted, frequently unsupportable children and unsafe, frequently fatal back-alley abortions, as highlighted by Dawn Legans, Executive Vice President of Planned Parenthood Foundation. But even before the reinstatement of that policy, tougher abortion laws all across the Americas have been threatening women's lives and family stability, exacerbating inequality, shame, and discrimination, They also paint a painful picture of what the United States could look like with Trump-inspired pro-life state policies, not to mention a Trump-nominated justice to tip Supreme Court balance against the landmark Roe v. Wade decision and make all U.S. abortion illegal again. So writes Colombian-based journalist Angelica Albaladejo in the WPJ Winter Issue. Her report is headlined, A Witch Hunt Against Poor Women, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Angelica, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me, David. How many countries in Latin America have complete bans on abortions, and which ones? Well, there are seven countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that currently have complete bans on abortion. These are the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Nicaragua, Chile, Suriname, Honduras, and El Salvador. Nowhere, you write, is the criminalization of women's bodies more visible than in El Salvador since 1998. How did the law change then? Why and who was behind it? Well, before 1998, El Salvador's laws allowed for women to access an abortion in cases of rape or when the pregnancy posed a risk to the mother's life. But in 1998, 
pro-life lobbyists together with socially conservative politicians and strong backing from the Catholic Church worked together to strike all of those exemptions from the law, codifying a total ban on abortion. Tell us how many Salvadorian women have actually been prosecuted for abortion-related crimes since the crackdown and with what sort of punishment, especially in the most notorious cases of a group called Las 17? Since 2000, there have been at least 129 women prosecuted for abortion-related crimes in El Salvador. And as you mentioned, Las 17 or the 17 represent the most notorious cases because these women have been sentenced to more than 30 years in prison after having a miscarriage or stillbirth. Though the group is still known as Las 17, there are now at least 25 women serving sentences, and most of them worked low-income jobs such as sweatshop or domestic work and lived in poor or rural areas, and many of them had little education or were illiterate. And that's why Venice Munoz, One of the lawyers who represented several of the women has described this abortion policy as a witch hunt against poor women, just the title of my report. But international pressure did bring a spotlight to those cases and ultimate vindication for some. Uh, Talk about uh, Carmen Guadalupe Vasquez Aldana and Maria Teresa Rivera. International and Salvadoran women's rights groups and human rights lawyers have led a decade-long campaign to free Las 17. The two women you mentioned, Guadalupe and Maria Teresa, were both successfully released from prison as a result of national and international pressure. In 2015, Guadalupe became the first woman to be granted a pardon by the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly. At 17 years old, raped and impregnated, and she miscarried while at work as a housekeeper. When she was rushed to the hospital, the hospital staff actually turned her over to the police under suspicions that she had induced an abortion. And at the time of her release in 2015, Guadalupe had already served seven years of her 30-year sentence for aggravated homicide. It wasn't until there was a recognition that there were actually multiple due process violations during her trial that she was released. Maria Teresa had a similar situation. She also suffered a miscarriage. She was a single mom, and she was sentenced to the maximum punishment for murder, which is 40 years in prison. And it wasn't until 2016, after four years of advocacy on her behalf, that a judge found serious judicial errors in her trial as well, and she was also released. And what about the other members of that group? Advocates estimate that there could be anywhere around 25 women behind bars in El Salvador with similar experiences to those of Maria Teresa and Guadalupe. More recently, there's been a proposal to make the country's abortion laws even tougher, but also another to restore those original three exemptions, rape, severe fetal defects, and risk for the mother's life. What are the forces behind each proposal, and uh, what do you see as the prospects? The strongest forces behind the push to make the abortion ban even more punitive are right-wing religious groups and the country's conservative Arena Party. In July of 2016, the Arena Party actually had a few members propose a change to the law that would increase the maximum jail sentence for women accused of having abortions to up to 50 years, which is the maximum punishment for any crime in the country. And if enacted, this could mean that if a Salvadoran woman or girl became pregnant as a result of rape and sought out an abortion, 
she could actually face up to 50 years in prison while the maximum sentence her rapist could receive is eight years. Uh, it is unlikely uh, that this legislation will pass due to pressure from women's rights advocates and internal disagreement within the Arena Party. And as you mentioned, David, there's also been another law introduced that would effectively revert the country's abortion laws back to the pre-1998 three-exemption rule. And this legislation was introduced in October 2016 by members of the Salvador's ruling party, the leftist FMLN. This is also unlikely to pass uh, due to current disagreements within the party's intense political climate. How many other countries in the Americas criminalize abortion except in those three circumstances? More than half of the countries in the Americas, uh, 29 in total, criminalize abortion in all but a few specific cases. And most of those countries have some form of this three exception rule. And where it is mostly or partially legal, you say the actual availability and use of abortion services is not so widespread, with Colombia as a notable example. Talk about the hurdles there in the doctor's office, hospitals, and the courts. Even when abortion laws are slightly less restrictive on paper, social and institutional barriers will often block women from accessing adequate care, particularly for the region's poorest women and those who are living in rural areas. So 10 years ago, Colombia partially decriminalized abortion to allow the procedure in cases of rape or incest, when the mother's life or health is at risk, or when the fetus can't survive outside of the womb. But the law hasn't been consistently applied by all doctors or hospitals. There's some level of personal discretion in interpreting the law, and reproductive health care providers can deny care based on a religious or moral conscientious objection. And in many cases, this can leave women seeking care without any safe legal options. Talk more about the special difficulties uh, getting an abortion in the countryside. In rural areas, it's more likely that a woman who's been denied care on the grounds of conscientious objection would have another doctor or hospital available to her. For women who don't have the economic means to travel elsewhere to seek out an abortion, that would put the procedure out of reach for them. Uh, these obstacles to care are also exacerbated by the fact that Colombia's countryside has been the main site of the longest-running armed conflict in the Western Hemisphere for more than 50 years. And rural areas in Colombia have historically lacked a strong state presence or infrastructure for health care. And these factors place women at even higher risk of sexual violence and unplanned pregnancies without having access to adequate reproductive health care or even the autonomy to make decisions about whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. How has the latest version of Colombia's long-sought peace agreement affected the abortion issue, the prospects for change or moderation? After four years of negotiation, the Colombian government and the country's largest guerrilla group, the FARC, have reached an agreement to end more than 50 years of war. And the agreement has been lauded by international bodies for its historic inclusion of women's and LGBT rights in every section of the accord. Uh, among the most significant advances for women's rights is the creation of a special unit that would investigate sexual violence against women during the conflict. Notably, perpetrators of 
sexual crimes will not be eligible for amnesty. So these are general advances for women's rights in the country that could translate into increased recognition of the difficulties of women who have experienced sexual violence and respect for, for reproductive rights. And the implementation of the accord will also hopefully lead to a reduction in rural violence, which could allow for expanded access to care in these areas. So with more than 97% of women in Latin America and the Caribbean living in countries that heavily restrict or totally ban abortion, how do the actual rates of abortion there rank worldwide? And what's the dynamic at work? Nearly every woman in the region is restricted from accessing legal abortion in some way. But Latin America and the Caribbean still has the highest rates of abortion in the world. Reproductive health experts have actually found that an unmet need for effective contraception and high rates of unintended pregnancy in the region lead to a higher demand for abortion services, legal or not. And this lack of access to reproductive health care actually forces many women to seek out unsafe clandestine abortions in higher numbers. You found that the absence of reproductive care has become especially significant in light of the mosquito-borne Zika virus epidemic. Say more about that. The Zika virus undoubtedly represents a significant public health crisis, particularly in countries like El Salvador and Brazil, where access to contraception is very limited for low-income women and abortion is totally banned. And because Zika can be sexually transmitted has been linked to severe birth defects. It is a sexual and reproductive health issue. However, most countries in the region have focused on telling women not to become pregnant rather than providing preventative health care or abortions when necessary. You also report increased campaigning across the Americas by U.S. church groups and other anti-abortion activists. Yes, just as U.S. foreign policy is having impacts in the region, there's also a very well-established anti-choice infrastructure that's been refined in the United States by conservative religious groups primarily and has been exported to Latin America. And many of the most successful and unfortunately harmful tactics of the U.S. anti-choice movement have taken deep roots in countries like Colombia, where sidewalk counseling, crisis pregnancy centers, clinic protests, prayer vigils are, are all rapidly expanding with direct support from U.S. organizations. And this is actually an issue I'm continuing to investigate. Given the situation as it has existed uh, before Trump reinstated the Mexico City policy, do you see that move as, as having a significant effect in the area? I think it will have an effect. And I think that it's important to recognize the fact that the the Mexico City policy, also known as the global gag rule, has been reinstated by every Republican administration since 1989, and it, it doesn't work in isolation. Since 1973, there's also been an appropriations rider known as the Helms-Burton Amendment that has restricted U.S. assistance from being used to carry out abortion procedures. So what the global gag rule effectively does is expand that reach into restricting aid from any organizations that so much as discuss abortion as an option. And in Latin America, these increased restrictions on aid 
are likely to lead to clinic closures, uh, reduced access to contraception and treatment for Zika, HIV, and AIDS. And it could also help bolster lawmakers and, and lobbyists who are supportive of heavily restricting access to reproductive health care, including abortion. What about the counter-campaign begun by the Netherlands Minister of Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation to raise money for overseas NGOs whose abortion and family planning services are threatened by the reinstated Mexico City policy? Well, the reinstatement of the global gag rule is going to result in a $600 million funding gap. And so this response by the Netherlands and uh, about 20 other countries who have pledged support uh, is a very strong show of international support for protecting sexual and reproductive rights and access to health care. What are the current policy positions of key regional and international groups on reproductive rights as human rights, and how effective are they, starting with the Organization of American States? Reproductive rights have long been considered a basic human right by a number of regional and international bodies, as you said. But across the Americas, there are still many countries enforcing highly restrictive abortion laws in violation of these obligations. For instance, the OAS has adopted a convention to prevent, punish, and eradicate violence against women, including sexual violence and discrimination. So when Colombia passed their three exceptions law in the 1990s, the courts actually did so in compliance with this OAS convention against discrimination against women, but few other countries have followed suit. What about the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights? Where do they stand? What can they do? The ICHR, which is the human rights body of the OAS, has held several hearings on women's sexual and reproductive rights. And for instance, Commissioner Margaret May McCauley has been very outspoken about violations of women's rights by laws that are meant to control their bodies. However, countries in the region are not obligated to comply with the recommendations of the IACHR. And moving up to the highest level, the United Nations, uh, what, what's the, what are the policies and, and impact or lack of impact there? The UN has actually been very clear when it comes to defining sexual and reproductive health as fundamental human rights. Members of the UN have agreed to take steps toward eliminating discrimination against women, including by ensuring access to health services like family planning and abortion. But these international obligations uh, are also asserting the right to reproductive choice and when it comes to abortion, international standards require states to at least provide access to safe and legal abortion in cases of rape, incest, or a threat to the life or health of the mother. However, while the OAS, IACHR, and the UN have the capacity to make recommendations to governments for improving their compliance with regional and international human rights standards, the institutions don't have peace when it comes to actually enforcing the standards when governments refuse to comply. As is often the case, media coverage of shocking cases can have an impact, as in Chile, you report. Talk about that and what you see as the possibilities going forward. 
Well, Chile is an interesting example. Um, they've had a strict ban on abortion since 1989. And in 2015, the country's first female president, Michelle Bachelet, made a campaign promise to relax the country's total ban based on her own background as a physician and health minister. A bill introduced by Bachelet in 2015 would allow access to safe and legal abortions in three cases. Um, and it was a particularly controversial case that that same year that sparked more activism and, and pushed lawmakers to consider the legislation. Uh, based on the existing law at that time, an 11-year-old Chilean girl was being denied an abortion after she had been raped and impregnated by her mother's boyfriend. And it's actually been years already of a heated and drawn-out debate. The lower house of the Chilean Congress uh, voted to pass the bill in 2016, and in January of this year, the Chilean Senate also passed the measure for further consideration. So it does seem likely that Chile may no longer have a total ban on abortion in the next year or years to come. And is there a lesson there for other countries going forward? I think that the lesson that could be learned from Chile is that although there is very heated debate in these countries, it is worthwhile to take the public health standpoint. And it was important for a politician in that country to look at it from the perspective of physician background and see that this is actually a public health and safety issue that should be addressed in compliance with international human rights standards. Angelica Albaladejo, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Angelica Albaladejo is a Medellin-based journalist focused on women's rights, security, gender-based violence, and social protest in Latin America. Her article in the WPJ Winter issue is A Witch Hunt Against Poor Women. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find articles on Donald Trump's savage capitalism, the battle to control Ukraine's future through its past, and how the left can right itself, plus the retro-macho politics of Brazil and the infrastructure of counterinsurgency. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the immigration tsunami that's hit Greece, as well as the politics behind it. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.